Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. I'm a sophomore at Santa Clara. And today I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Plant. And let me just say that Dr. Plant is one of the most incredible people I have ever met. And you are in for a real treat. Um, Dr. Plant's many titles include Augustine Cardinal Bow, SJ University Professor at Santa Clara. He's the Adjunct Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's a licensed psychologist and the owner of his own family vineyard. He has written 22 books, well over 200 journal articles, and hundreds of blog posts about topics ranging from health, spirituality, ethics, uh, to psychology, and much more for the Psychology Today and SCU Illuminate blogs. Dr. Plant has also been interviewed by nearly every major news outlet for his research and involvement with the wave of sexual misconduct by Catholic priests. In this episode, we cover Dr. Plant's incredible career, how to get more happiness in your life, and whether that's even a goal worth shooting for. We talk about how he thinks of topics to write about, what factors lead to greater compassion in students, and much more. I don't like to play favorites, but this may be one of my favorite conversations yet. Um, And you can Google Thomas Plant's name, that's Plant with an E at the end, and find his blogs at Psychology Today and SCU Illuminate. So please enjoy the conversation. Dr. Plant, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, So I'd love to start out, I saw this blog post that you wrote about a letter to your 16-year-old self. And right. in, in that blog, there was actually a little a little picture, and it said, right. Thomas Plant, uh, president. So I, right. I was kind of wondering, what were you like as a teenager? What were you, you president of? And were there any activities or things you were involved in that relate to what you do today? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I was uh, uh, born and raised in uh, Lincoln, Rhode Island, which is about 15 minutes north of Providence, Rhode Island. And I was president of my class for my four years of high school, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And uh, the American Psychological Association kind of had asked me to do that. They have a, a little series of where they, where they ask um, psychologists to write a letter to their 16-year-old self. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, they, they just kind of contacted me out of the blue and asked if I would do this for their series, and, and I did. And I think uh, I'm still that person. I'm still that same 16, you know, the things I was involved with, the things that were important to me, uh, they're still true today, many years later. And uh, so I, I do feel like I'm still very much that person, only without long hair and a mustache. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> What types of activities or things were you involved in in high school and college? Well, I'm, uh, the main thing is when I was in high school, I was mostly involved with student government stuff. Again, mm-hmm. I, as I mentioned, I was class president my, the four years of my high school. And I was also in, uh, it was at the time right after Vatican II in the Catholic Church where we started to change the liturgical music, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which was more now what we would call folk masses back then, you know, mm-hmm. which was guitar and maybe piano and even drums and so forth. And so I was on in 
that first wave of folk music. Uh, and, uh, you know, life uh, is, goes into a complete circle. One of the um, songs, one of the uh, composers we always played was a, a very well-known liturgical composer named Dan Schutte, who was part of what's called the St. Louis Jesuits. And if you know anything about Catholic or liturgical music, he's very, very well-known. Uh, Here I am, Lord, Yahweh, you are near, um, mountain and hills, uh, sing a new song, city of God. These are all very popular uh, Catholic liturgical you know, songs, and I used to um, be part of that in, in high school. And then in college, I was in charge of music ministry mm. for um, uh, in my college world. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then the, in terms of full circle, long story short, uh, Dan Chudy happens to live locally in San Francisco, and he and I have become dear, dear friends. And we've traveled together and spent time together, and it's kind of fun. Uh, one of your heroes of your past, uh, as, a, as a many fast forward many years later, uh, you've become very good friends with. Mm -hmm. How did you get interested in psychology and ethics? And I feel like you have so many different uh, interests besides you mentioned music in college. So where did those start? Well, then the psychology thing is also a full circle um, story as well. When I, I knew when I was in June, when I was trying to figure out what do I want to do with myself. Uh, I didn't come from a highly educated in background or anything. My father was a high school dropout um, and thought education was a, a waste of time. And so, but I had a, a grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who uh, said education is your way out of um, poverty. It's a way out of a little tiny itsy bitsy world. And wherever you go or whatever you do, make sure you follow education. So, mm -hmm. so I knew I wanted to go into education. And uh, when I was in junior high school, there was a popular television show called the Bob Newhart show uh, that was it was a kind of a sitcom where Bob Newhart is a who's still alive and a famous actor he uh, plays the role of a psychologist and so I watched this show and I said I could do that that's mm -hmm. something I could do that I'd like my father was a construction worker he very much worked with his body in in the tough climate of New England and um, he wasn't very happy doing that and it certainly wasn't something I wanted to do but I would watch Bob Newhart on his show and say this is something I could do mm -hmm. so when I was in junior high I decided I want to be a psychologist mm -hmm. and never deviated from that plan mm -hmm. and then again full circle fast forward in the year 2000 Bob Newhart's youngest daughter graduated from Santa Clara mm -hmm. And he was the commencement speaker. And I asked our uh, president at the time, Father Locatelli, hey, I was chair of the psych department at that time and said, could I or could our department give him an honorary license to practice as a psychologist as kind of like a joke, a little fun from the, mm -hmm. what he portrayed back in the 70s on television. And Father Locatelli, as he always is, very uh, gracious and whatnot, he said, sure, you can do that and you can hood him and you can host him for the day. So I spent uh, graduation in, in the year 2000 hosting Bob Newhart, uh, another one of my heroes. Uh, and could tell him the story about mm. the psychologist because of him. So, uh, so that's how I got into psychology. And then, in terms of ethics, uh, 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 I always, because of my religious background in the Catholic world and so forth, I was always very much interested in what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, and so forth. And um, I, you know, observed a lot of problematic behavior out there. Um, I come from a state uh, that uh, was very much a crime state, a mob state. Uh, in fact, there's a wonderful podcast called Crime Town that talks about the history of Providence, Rhode Island, where you have this uh, remarkable uh, um, 
uh, a relationship between the Catholic Church, the uh, politicians, and the and the mob uh, in the state. And I watched a lot of a lot of things and some things I probably shouldn't have seen. And uh, and I was always interested in what's right. And then um, fast forward uh, back in the early '90s. Uh, I remember when my uh, grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who encouraged me to go into higher education, uh, uh, he was a grocer. So he worked. In a, he was in his 90s. He was on his deathbed. And my last visit to him, he said, "Do me, th do three things for me." He says, "One, he says, take care of my grand, you know, my grandmother, his wife, who was still alive and went mm -hmm. out living in nursing home. Two, pray to the Virgin Mary, and three, always do the right thing." And I said, I promise. And from that moment on, I was really focused on ethics. And I published a book called Do the Right Thing that I dedicated to him. And I continued doing a lot in ethics. And it was inspired, really, at the end of the day by my grandfather. Uh, and I do say Hail Mary every day. Sometimes multiple Hail Marys every day. <laughs> and how, how did you get involved in the reporting on the sexual misconduct right. in the Catholic Church? Because that seemed like a big uh, part of your career and I know you've written several books about it and you right. ended up being interviewed by almost every major uh, news outlet so how did that how did that get started yeah uh, that was an interesting one in the sense that I didn't look for it I uh, it came to me uh, what happened was back in the 80s la uh, late 80s I was interested uh, I was um, uh, I have a small private practice in um, in Menlo Park and I uh, and uh, I had a priest friend uh, who said um, We've got a problem. We ha we it's come to our attention that one of our uh, clerics have, is being accused of sexual misconduct. And again, this is back in the late '80s. This is before I came to Santa Clara as a professor, which was in the early '90s. And uh, he basically said, "You're a Catholic. You're a psychologist. Maybe you can help us with this problem. We don't know what to do with this guy." So I see this person, and then and then after I do an evaluation, I make treatment recommendations and so forth. Uh, I get a call from the same person saying, "You know, I think we have another one." And okay, fine. Uh, and then before you know it, one le leads to two, leads to three, leads to four. And you start to do more and more. And again, this is all during the late 80s. Um, and uh, finally, uh, starting in the uh, uh, early 90s or so, uh, I started gathering research data, connecting with people around the country and, and in Canada who were doing this kind of work. And back in 1998, actually, long before the Boston Globe story, uh, we held a conference here at Santa Clara University. Uh, we were doing a book project. We are all the major players here. And uh, we, you know, it wasn't something that people that interested in. We had a press conference where we announced uh, the data about how many clerics are abusing children. And w only one person from the press came, um, a guy named Don Latin, who was the religion writer for the uh, uh, San Francisco Chronicle. We were so embarrassed that nobody was interested, nobody came, that we were filling up the room with uh, stu Santa Clara students and, uh, and uh, administrative assistants just to make the room look like it was full. And, uh, and we, uh, uh, the Chronicle published it. Uh, we were right on the numbers. Uh, we published a book in the late 90s. And then all of a sudden, Boston happened in 2002, and then um, all of a sudden, people are interested. And uh, we were like, well, what took you so long? Mm -hmm. And uh, to tell you the truth, the first six months of 2002, I did, other than teach my classes, I did nothing but media. I mean, mm -hmm. um, every, they discovered the book, they were, discovered the topic. And, uh, uh, you know, CNN, uh, World News Tonight, uh, PBS, I mean, it's just that's all I did. And again, to give Favolo Catelli credit, I know a lot of this story can embarrass the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. 
and it put Santa Clara sort of on the map on this topic. And I asked him because uh, I said, "Are you okay with me doing this? You know, I, you know, I don't want to do anything that would embarrass the university, embarrass the church." And he very, as he always was, very gracious. He was says, "No," he says, "No, you you got to let the truth, do the truth, go after it, hmm. do what you need to do." I said, and then he jokingly uh, said during one of our conferences in 2004, just don't embarrass me. And I said, I will never embarrass you. I said, okay, go for it. And he was very graciously gave full support. We held another conference in 2004 with all the major players. Now everybody's interested with uh, national media here. And then we did another one in 2012. Um, um, to celebrate, not celebrate, but to acknowledge the 10-year anniversary of the Boston Globe story, mm. and then also um, do a third book project. Mm. So I continue working in this area. Yeah. How has that that research work, I guess, impacted your life? Like, have you ever looked back and and like seen what difference that has made in your life? I don't know, because it seems like such a major part of the research you've done, and it kind of just happened by chance. So. You're right, exactly. And I felt like I got a shot out of a cannon hmm. in 2002, uh, uh, um, because one thing leads to another. Yeah. So that one thing leads to another meant more um, uh, uh, consultations and evaluations. So now I've, I've done probably about, maybe about 50 or 60 of these hmm. things. Uh, where you do the evaluation or you do the treatment. I still have uh, some of these guys in my clinical practice. Uh, and then that led me to be on the National Review Board for, uh, for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is uh, basically their board for child protection. So now you're doing national policy on uh, child protection. It got me connected with a variety of other folks in this area, both in the United States and abroad. Uh, it led to a lot of research, a lot of consultation, a lot of projects. Then that led to, uh, I also do evaluations for those entering into religious life, people that want to become priests, deacons, nuns, and so forth, and the, for the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Orthodox. And that led to being on committees about national standards, about evaluations for people mm. that just want to enter in, and how do you screen folks. Mm. And so, you know, that went down that route. So, you know, I think part of it is no matter how planful you are in your life and your career and all that, stuff happens, and it diverts you in a certain direction, which is okay. Uh, uh, so I, I never thought that I'd be uh, kind of an expert on clergy sexual abuse, but, you know, there you go. Uh, I never thought I'd live in California either, by the way. Mm. I mean, I thought California was somewhere between Mars and Venus uh, as a New Englander, and here I am in California. So there's mm. a lot of things that come your way that you have to be reflect on, discern on, and think about, and then you say yes to or mm. no. And... Uh, you know, when I was asked to help out with the clergy abuse thing, I said yes and didn't didn't know where it was going to take me. Yeah. When I was reviewing your all your publications, I was really struck by just the sheer number of journal articles. There was over like 200 or something and over right. 20 books that you've helped out with. So I'm wondering, how do you decide what you're going to write about? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I think um, uh, earlier in my career, I knew I had to be practical because, you know, um, I, I needed to get my doctoral dissertation done. I needed to get into, you know, uh, a job. I, uh, I needed to uh, march through the steps that all young people have to march through to. Um, and much of the research I was doing and what the writing was about had to do with health psychology, specifically the psychological benefits of aerobic exercise. It has nothing to do with clergy, it has nothing to do with ethics, but it sure bought me a doctoral dissertation, it bought me a good internship postdoc, it bought me a, a, a tenure track faculty job here at Santa Clara University. Mm -hmm. 
So it served me very, very well, and I was always interested in it because I was a runner, and I was always a runner. I mean, not like cross-country track at school or anything, but just for health and fitness sake. And so I was always, because I was a runner myself, my wife was a runner, we, our first date was a 10K, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I was always interested in the psychological issues with running. And so um, I uh, uh, got launched there, and it was uh, something that uh, fortunately could um, result in getting me through my career. But then once I got tenure, uh, then you can do more things what you want. And I've always been so intrigued by I'm so involved with the Catholic Church. I, I want to do more interesting, interesting things that were associated with the Catholic Church and religion in general, because it's always been very compelling for me. And uh, and secondly, I've always been so interested in ethics. And plus, I had my mandate from my grandfather to do the right thing, <laughs> so I had to kind of do that. And so uh, and so you you get involved in that that regard. And um, and then finally, I do a lot on the on the the health benefits of uh, engagement with faith. And 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 uh, a lot of that came from um, work with colleagues and so forth. Again, one project leads to another, and and, and the next thing you know, you're you're just rocking and rolling here. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's part of it. I, I think um, uh, when you can get energized and excited about a topic and a theme or whatever, it's easy to crank a lot of projects out because you're just like ready to go. Uh, uh, but uh, if it's something that your heart's not into, it's boring or something like that, it's hard to get uh, the oomph together to uh, make it happen. So yeah. I think um, I never expected to to have, uh, I'm, I just handed in my 22nd book wow. uh, project uh, just last week. And uh, and as you mentioned, there's over 200 articles and chapters. I never thought that that would happen. Hmm. But you know, one thing leads to another and mm -hmm. you're off to the races. And besides, I'm really old. So that's the other part. You know, if, if you're if you at this long enough, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, things start to add up. Uh -huh. How do you decide if a topic would make for a good research project, book, or more informal blog post? Like, how do you decide? Yeah, that's that? a great that's a great question. And and part nowadays it's so interesting. And young people like yourself, you know, probably have a better feel for this than I do. But we you want you know you want to ask yourself where's your impact? Where, you know, where do you have impact? And it's it's everything. A lot of this is up in the air now. But it, but you know, so for example, you could work on an article or a chapter or a book. Uh, versus a blog or something like that. And I've had so many experiences where the impact today is seems to be more on the blog side. Mm. So for example, is I you know you work really hard to put together a book project, you get it published, you're all happy about it, and then you get your royalty check in the mail and you realize that wow, I haven't then not too many people bought this thing. And uh, and then um on the other hand, you can work on a blog that might take you 90 minutes to put together. And um uh you and I've been blogging for Psychology Today magazine for about almost, about, I guess, about eight or nine years uh, in the Illuminate for Santa Clara. But for Psychology Today magazine, uh, I can post something with them. And I've had the experience where you spend you know, 90 minutes on it. You post it. You go to bed. You wake up. And there's a call from CNN they want to interview. And uh, and it, and before you know it, before the day's out, you've got a quarter of a million hits or half a million hits, and you're like, "Wow, that's impact!" And so I think um, one has to ask yourself, where do you have your impact nowadays? Hmm. And if you're an academic, you've got to do the books and the articles and the chapters and all that because that's the way the academic world works. You don't mm -hmm. you don't get tenure by writing blogs, but once you have tenure or full professor or something like that, you can. Uh, do that kind of thing, and uh, and you feel like you have a voice, and uh, 
I'm amazed at uh, where that stuff. You know, I did a blog a few weeks ago, and it ended up being um, an op. It, you know, without me knowing it, it ends up being an op-ed piece in a Dubai newspaper. Hmm. It's like, how did that happen? Hmm. So, uh, but it, it means that people read it, and uh, if you can impact the the world, uh, uh, and it only takes you 90 minutes or so to do it, why mm-hmm. not? Yeah. Hmm. Is there any piece of writing that you're most proud of? You know, um, I did a book for the American Psychological Association on spiritual um, practices and psychotherapy. I'm super proud of that book. Uh, they approached me for it. I didn't ask them to do it. They came to me with it. They wanted it. The American Psychological Association, to me, is a, it's a prestigious press, and they asked me to do it. Um, I'm super proud of that, that book project. I'm so, um, very proud of that first clergy abuse project because we were the first out of the gate. I mean, nobody was doing this back in the uh, back in the day, and so we were sort of the first people out there. So, um, and the numbers that you hear in the press are, are often refer, are referring to our book. I mean, those are the num- that's where the numbers are coming from. So that's that's kind of cool, and uh, um, and I and I have a textbook in, in clinical psych that I'm pretty proud of because. Uh, because a lot of students are reading this thing, mm. and you feel like, well, you have impact on the next generation mm-hmm. of psychologists. So that that kind of feels pretty good. Mm-hmm. There was one one book I noticed that I wanted to read this this quote from on the description. The book was The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty, yeah. and it said, uh, in an effort to alter behavior, scientists have conducted research to better understand the factors that contribute to both caring and cruel behavior among individuals and groups. This uplifting volume re- reviews evidence collected from experts across disciplines and explains how certain psychological, spiritual, and religious factors spur compassion and deter cruelty. So I'm wondering, what are a couple of the factors that encourage compassion? Right. Well, yeah, we, we know this pretty well because we actually did a longitudinal study here, right here at Santa Clara University mm-hmm. on this very question. So you may not know or notice, but when you first enter into the university as a freshman, you are asked to fill out some long questionnaire and they you know it's like circle the bubbles and it's about all sorts of things you know, your background did you go to private school did you go to public school you know uh, uh, what your activities were when you were young and blah 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 and embedded in that questionnaire is a compassion inventory that I developed with a couple of student helpers about a decade ago and so everybody fills this out this compassion inventory uh, and then when you graduate, you fill out uh, this uh, questionnaire again about all sorts of questions about your college experience. You know, did you do a root pay placements? What was your major? How much partying do you do? I mean, all these different questions. Mm-hmm. And you do that as a graduating senior. So the university has that data. It's just sitting there. So a student of mine uh, who graduated a couple of years ago, Aaron Callister, her and I uh, got together and we said, let's, let's go mine that data. So we did a longitudinal study looking at what predicts improved compassion among Santa Clara students. And you find some interesting things. You know, one, Arupe placements, community-based learning, that kind of stuff, you know, um, engaging in that. Diversity workshops, a diversity kind of training, stuff like that. Um, if you happen to be a social science major or a natural science major, you tend to have more compassion than, sorry, engineers, but the mm-hmm. engineers had less, <laughs> uh, at least in the study. And um, if you have kind of left political leanings, you mm-hmm. tend to score high in compassion as you move through the college years. Uh, and if you felt valued by the university, like you felt mm-hmm. like you belonged, this was, a, you know, they, they appreciate you, you value, they value you, you belong here. Mm-hmm. So all of these things correlated uh, with increased compassion scores 
um, over the four-year period. And, and there's research not just at Santa Clara University, but across the country that looks at other things that can Im improve compassion. And there are things like, you know, solidarity. And a lot of it has to do with Jesuit, you know, values and stuff like that. Solidarity with the poor and marginalized. Engagement with the, um, the community and, mm -hmm. so, and so forth. Uh, and so we continue to do studies on compassion development and uh, uh, we think it's so important nowadays because the world seems to be such a cruel and nasty place. I mean, our politics mm -hmm. and so forth, it just seems to be nasty out there. And, uh, and so we do need more compassion and we need to do whatever we can to have a more compassionate community. Hmm. What steps do you think students could take to live, live a happier life or get more compassion? Because I feel like, like you said, there are all these kind of pressures and influences and a lot of times people are you know losing hope in the current time so what yeah. advice would you give to someone yeah that, that's really uh, an issue and we have uh, our, our skyrocketing rates of anxiety depression mm -hmm. things like that among college students many many people are on psychotropic medications sadly there's been um, suicides you know on our campus as well as other campuses uh, I, just yesterday, I read uh, the, the quarterback for the Washington State football team committed uh, mm -hmm. suicide after losing some game, uh, mm -hmm. some bowl game or whatever. And so this is really concerning and upsetting. And I think there's a variety of things that we can do. And it's uh, hard. You could, we could spend all day talking about this mm -hmm. topic. But I think there's a variety of things. I mean, one has to do with, you know, things like suicidality. It, you know, it's a permanent solution for a temporary problem. So people are, you know, you commit suicide and that's a permanent thing. And it's a temporary uh, problem because whatever is upsetting you, a loss of a job, a, a poor grades, a relationship breakup, chronic depression, whatever, whatever it is, it's temporary. This too shall pass. And sometimes it's hard to uh, have that hope. Um, we want to. Uh, we know that the more that pe uh, people give to others, um, work with others, be there for others, uh, tends to lower depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So all those Arupe placements and the immersion trips and the volunteerism, mm -hmm. it's good for you as the the person provi providing the, the the assistance as well as for the community. So um, if people feel needed, wanted, I can help. That really lifts them up. Having reasonable expectations. Uh, students today, as you know, you grow up in high school and all that, and you get the message that unless you have perfect grades and perfect SATs and you start a, uh, an orphanage in a third world country, you'll never get into a decent college, and they get that pressure saying, no, no, you got to have reasonable expectations and so forth. Have a community of support. Um, no risk factors and try to address those risk factors around anxiety, depression, and so mm -hmm. forth, suicidality. So there's a lot we can do, and we need to do much more in community. And we, we also have to be careful with social media because that makes it worse. And the research is now is coming out suggesting that the more people, um, time people spend passively kind of looking at social media, they feel like crap because uh, they see the, it looks like the whole world's happy and they're not so happy. Mm -hmm. The world, whole world out there is having fun and they're not having fun. And so that uh, it's one of the unintended consequences of social media. Mm -hmm. Looking at the next... Uh, ten or fifteen years in the in the world, there's a lot of new uh, new technology, automation, self-driving cars, and a lot of and job loss, and that can kind of help cause the fear um, that people have. So I'm wondering if you see like what kind of what kind of future you see with that, and if spirituality and ethics and psychology play 
a role in in helping us be you know good citizens moving forward i guess in that type of world yeah i mean uh, and again i'm not a tech person in fact mm-hmm. i'm so low tech so one of these days somebody's gonna knock on my door and throw <laughs> me out of silicon valley they're gonna say you're too low tech for silicon valley you gotta believe uh but i'm not very techy um uh at all but I think there's always room for spirituality and certainly always room for ethics because at the end of the day, we're, every day we're asking, answering the question, who am I and who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. And regardless of the technology or the advances or the jobs of the future or anything like that, we're always answering that question, who am I and who do I want to be? What kind of person, do I want to be a person of compassion, of res- respecting other people, of a person of integrity and so forth? Is that who I want to be or not? Uh, and spirituality, we always ask the big questions, you know, the big question, you know, where am I in the grand scheme of things? Um, what happens after I die? Um, does it matter? Uh, uh, um, uh, how can I find community of like-minded souls? And so I think issues of spirituality and ethics will always be super important. And I think they'll always be super important even as the technological world uh, goes at its rapid-fire pace. Because we live in a world now that's pretty unethical. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there. Whether you look at politics, you look at all the sexual harassment thing that's coming out among these famous movie stars and politicians and everybody else. It just seems like it's amazing that people can't seem to get their act together to act with basic ethics. And basic ethics, I keep it simple. Respect and compassion. You know, you, you respect people, treat people with compassion. You know, you're going to solve a lot of problems if you can just follow those two words. <laughs> you know, we can get more complicated than that, you know, add more words. But if you can just do that, um, that's pretty good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one one center that you're you're the director of is the Spirituality right. and Health Institute. Right. So what exactly does that do? Yeah, what basically that is is that's a group of um, faculty and some others from a variety of places from here at Santa Clara from multiple disciplines, as well as from UC Berkeley, uh, from Stanford, uh, from the Graduate Theological Union, uh, and a few other places. And we get together and we do collaborative research projects. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've done about five books projects together, a uh, bunch of different articles. And what's fun about that is um, we get together uh, for lunch meetings. Um, they're often pretty unstructured, but they lead to great projects. And there's, it's a very diverse group. You have folks who are clerics, folks who are not religious at all, people who are you know Catholic, Buddhist, Methodist, um, uh, kind of all over the map. And uh, uh, it's, it's just a terrific group. And so we have $500 a year that we spend for our lunch meetings. And so I always say we, we get a lot. Uh, we get a lot out of lunch money uh, where we get together, we talk about projects, and uh, we've really been very productive. And this has been going on, we've had this for about 15, 16 years now. Hmm. And then the, my last larger question is, are there any common misconceptions that students have about either ethics or happiness or living a virtuous life that you that you come across a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest um, misperception or whatever, and part of it is um, because of it's our culture and part of it's all the books that are out there about happiness. What does it take to be happy? I want to be happy. And there's all these books about that are focused on looking at the self, you know, if I, uh, uh, if I, how can I do more self-improvement for happiness, or can I meditate my way to happiness, or can I do all sorts of things for, ha- you know, for my personal happiness? 
And I think that's a, 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 a rabbit hole. It, 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 the research really ultimately doesn't support that. What we really know is that the happiness research is that, you know, it's not about you. It's about us. It's about others. And so happiness is not found by, you know, the, the big prestigious job, uh, having money come out of your ears, you know, fame and fortune. It really doesn't butter the biscuit. Um, but rather, um, it, uh, it, it has something to do with um, feeling um, part of something greater than yourself, um, being part of a community, uh, helping other people. Uh, it has to do with all these other things, reasonable expectations. And so, so many, so often Americans just, and young people just are trying to um, capture happiness when uh, they're down the wrong path. Hmm. And the, some of these books don't help. Uh, one book that does help, I think, that's off the top of my head, it's a great read. It's by a British journalist called America the Anxious. And it's a terrific book that addresses this, and it's a very engaging, and she's funny, too. It's a great book. And she's local. She's in Berkeley now. It's, um, but I think that's a good, um, easy-to-read uh, book that can give you a better feel for how America's gone kind of nutty. For mm -hmm. happiness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so um, they, they, I think that's the biggest misperception out there. Everybody wants to be happy, but they're they're following the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, awesome. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter sure. questions. So first, I'm wondering if you have any favorite place that you've traveled to. Place, fav yes. Well, I always like going to New England because that's my home, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I, I, my son is a college student at Dartmouth in northern New England, in New mm -hmm. Hampshire, and I've really, over the years, he's been there, he's a senior now, I've, I did a sabbatical there, and I've spent a lot of time there, and I've really mm -hmm. come to love northern New England, uh, uh, Vermont in particular, uh, but also New Hampshire, uh, I, uh, and I like going home to Providence. Uh, I love Hawaii, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I love there, and I love Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I think those are my three. Oh, and of course, Napa Valley. Uh, Napa Valley, uh, uh, I love food and wine. My wife's a great cook. We have a small vineyard. We make Syrah yeah. wine. Oh. And uh, uh, in fact, this weekend, we're going to Napa to celebrate our birthdays. And mm -hmm. uh, but so I'd say Napa Valley, Santa Fe, uh, uh, anywhere in Hawaii and uh, New England. Wow, cool. Um, are there any purchases of less than a hundred dollars that have really made a positive impact in your life that you've recently made <laughs> well it's a, that's a good one i mean my wife and i are totally not into things but we do like um consumables like we like uh, really good chocolate we like mm -hmm. really good wine we like a uh, uh, good bourbon to make manhattans and uh, old fashions uh yeah. and so you know a good box of seized candy a really nice bottle of wine uh you know these these are the things that we we like uh, for that are affordable and uh, and uh, can really really enjoy. In fact, my wife always says her epiphany wine was the uh, uh, back in the day she got a, a Camus, which is a wonderful Cabernet, for eighteen dollars before they <laughs> become all the rage. And she said uh, that was a, 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 a wine that um, really was an epiphany for her of what fine wine is like, and that was only eighteen dollars. <laughs> If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you say? I think it would be do the right thing. You know, do the right thing. Treat people with respect. Be compassionate. And treat people with reverence. Hmm. If you do that, things will generally work out pretty darn well.
Hmm. Um, so compassion, respect, reverence, and always do what's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciated it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.